The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been considering together now for months the realities beyond this life and what the Bible teaches about them. Now, more recently, realities of heaven for God's people. We come to face a difficult question in this today, and I ask you to turn with me to the second book of Samuel in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You probably know the scene of David being guilty of a terrible crime. He was able to continue in that crime of adultery and plotting someone's murder with a kind of blindness on him for a while, probably sure somehow in his human foolishness that he would get away with it. But in reality, he was a man of God. And his conscience was very close to the surface. And when Nathan the prophet accused him of what he had done, I'm going to pick up right in the midst of that event at verse 13 of Second Samuel 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan told the king, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because... By doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into the house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they said, he is. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed and put on lotions, he changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house at his request. They served him food, and he ate. But the servant said, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat? David answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. This is God's holy word. I wish to tell you this morning 
about a little girl named Becky Wilson. Becky was born in August of 1982 in Michigan. Her mother is my wife's sister, Judy. So Becky is our niece. Based on her date of birth, you would think, well, that means the Rogers have a niece who's about 27 years old. And she's probably by now married herself and has a family perhaps. Maybe she's a teacher like her mother. But those things aren't so because Becky's earthly life ended in 1989 when she was age six and a half. You see, Becky was born with a very rare cluster of neurological problems. We heard that there might only be a handful of children in the United States who had the exact same combination of difficulty. She was blind. She was deaf. She had cerebral palsy. She did not grow normally. At her death at six and a half, she weighed about 20 pounds. She was about the size of a maybe a little more than a year old child, a large baby. She never sat up by herself. She never spoke an intelligible word. She never walked. But Becky was beloved. She could smile the most beautiful smile when she was hugged or when you stroked her arm. She responded. She certainly knew there were people in her world, even though she couldn't see or hear. The physician said Becky would not see her second birthday, but her mom and dad and other people who loved her blew out candles age six, on a cake, before Becky went home to heaven. Now, you might think the statement I just made was a sentimental statement of an uncle. But I did say she went home to heaven. And I said that as a theologian and as someone who understands the Word of God as best I'm given to understand it, and as someone who has a sure and confident hope in Jesus Christ as my risen Lord. I expect when I make my exit from this life to greet Becky. And she's going to look different. I asked her mom's permission last week to speak about her this way. And Judy's word as a Christian woman, mother of Becky, she said to me, our comfort is that when we do see Becky again, She will be whole. Thanks be to God. At this point in our consideration of the Bible's teaching on after death, what comes, I turn to a very difficult subject. And it's difficult, as you can see and hear from what I've just told you, because there's no subject that probably contains more raw emotion in it than to think about the death of a child, whether it's your child or someone else's. There are many people who have a personal stake in this subject. I know that preaching this sermon for the second time today with a thousand or more people at two services and half of those people women and a certain portion of those women being of childbearing age or above, I know without taking a census that women are listening to me who have suffered miscarriages. Not a few, probably dozens, probably scores There's one of the silent sorrows of the Christian church. We don't hold a funeral, do we? 
when a woman miscarries. But she and her husband carry a great sadness, and in some cases, multiple for the same person. I also assume that there are mom and dads among us or listening to me later who have lost a child who has died because of disease or accident. And then when you widen this picture and think of millions of American children, American children aborted before they drew their first breath, and millions more children who've died of starvation and will even this day and even in this hour, or children who die of acts of violence or war or parental abuse or neglect. Folks, we're not talking about a theoretical subject here. This is hard reality. And it's hard not only emotionally, it's, it's hard for another reason, because we depend on the Word of God for our information on such things and, and on doctrine and what to believe and, and how to proceed in life. And let's be honest, the Bible doesn't have a lot of black and white billboards that tell us about the salvation of young children. And there would be some people that would say to us, oh, it doesn't tell us anything at all. I would disagree. It does give us information, but it's more of an indirect and inferential kind. It's, it's actually not unlike other doctrines. You might take the doctrine of baptism or other things where we have to reason from inference or from a less direct verse or text and try to put things together for many smaller pieces and use our logic and, and our inspired understanding as God allows us to see the whole picture of His Word. I don't believe the Bible leaves us clueless on this subject. You know, if you ask any sane person, practically, who attended a child's funeral, do you think this child is in heaven? Eliminate the people who would say there is no such thing as heaven, but ask those who think there is a heaven, do you think this child is in heaven? Just about every one of them is going to say, of course. Are you kidding? And if you press them, they would say, why goodness, children, look at children, they're just so innocent. They're just so naive. How could they not be in heaven? But I am not asking that we just give a sentimental answer. If we say as Christian people that God's Word is our source of information, then I'm not really satisfied until I have some sense of what God in His Word says about this and how in the world it comes alongside difficult subjects like original sin, the fact that we're born under the curse of Adam's sin, and and subjects like divine election. And some people would just throw up their hands then and say, well, we can't possibly unlock this subject. The question before us is, what happens at death to a child, whether an unborn child, a pre-born child, a a seven-day-old child like David's, a seven-year-old child? Or let's add, and we must add, to a physically mature but mentally handicapped adult who cannot respond to the gospel of belief and faith and profession in Christ as other adults or older children are able to do. What about them? I want biblical principles to try to address this whale 
Where is my child? Is my child in heaven? I'm going to tell you, I need two Sundays to do this. I don't do this very often, but in January, I spent a lot of time on this subject, a lot of reading, a lot of study. That doesn't make me the expert. But I did realize there was no way that one sermon could encompass the things I wanted to say. And so I hope you'll have patience to know that I'll get a certain distance with the subject this morning, but you're going to have to hear what I say next time to get the whole picture. Before going to our main text in 2 Samuel 12, I refer you first to a couple of background matters that are useful. These are what I call biblical facts about children as seen through the eyes of the Lord. And one is the evidence of God's view of children even before they're born. And so we had featured earlier in the service a whole section of Psalm 139 today. Uh, the, The peon of praise that David uttered as he considered the marvel of God who knew him before his birth. God who hovered over his life. David said, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That is not just great poetry. David was extolling a God who was at work behind and before and all around him, going ahead of him every moment of his life, knowing everything about him so comprehensively that he could say, all the days you have ordained for me, you've got me plotted on the calendar, O God, not just the day I came into this world with a whale, but the day I was conceived before that, nine months before that, and the day I will die. I don't know that, do you? God knows the day I will die, and he knows the day you will die. And he has every minute of it plotted out. David says, why, he knows what I'm thinking before I say it. And his conclusion in Psalm 139 is, what a God. What a God this is. Similarly, David speaks in Psalm 22, 9 and 10, where there he said, you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Now David wasn't saying, there I was, you know, a three-month-old child, and, and I was intellectually fully formed so that I could write psalms to you, O God, or have an adult knowledge of you. But he was saying, God, you were working in me, claiming me, setting me apart, and beginning what you would inevitably accomplish in my life. That's a very clear statement that God's lifetime work of salvation had begun in David, even as an infant. Now, that doesn't prove anything about infant salvation. I don't claim that it does. Certainly, it doesn't prove that God saves all infants and then adult faith and adult profession is not required. No. All it does say, though, is that God has this wonderful knowledge of us and plan for us. And, you know, we're not accidents in his sights. He sees us. He knows what he's going to do in us. Jeremiah, by the way, said just about the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 1 was a prophet. And the Lord revealed to Jeremiah this word in the first chapter of Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, ordaining you to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, the work that you do as an adult prophet was as good as done before you drew a breath in this world. Same wow, what a God. You see it in the New Testament. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1. 
there had an angel predict to him that John, his son, would, quote, be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. What does God do when he saves someone? He brings his spirit into us and fills us with his spirit. So here at least, now these aren't conclusive all by themselves, but here are are places that tell us that God's saving influence can be planned and be at work even from the earliest stirrings of a human life. It doesn't say that God saves every infant that way, but it does say that he can do this, and he has done this, and this is indeed a way that he works if he chooses to. And it's really not a logical leap from these kinds of evidences to say that God sees and knows every child from conception. There are no throwaway lives in this world. The human race throws children away in all kinds of different cruel and horrible ways. Children need protection in our world. It's one of the first things we've seen in Haiti. Orphaned children who are like to some people with their devious minds are like gold walking around on the streets to be used and abused for adult purposes. But God knows those lives. And we can conclude that any eternal destiny that God plans for a child will not be, cannot be, cut off or nullified by that child's physical death before what we would say was his due time. Now, another relevant fact to note, and I say again, this is not all conclusive in and of itself, but it's a little fact to at least tuck away and think about, is the fact that in Scripture we see a number of places where God speaks in a curious fashion or reveals in a curious fashion his thoughts about seeing children in a special moral or spiritual category set apart from adults who are fully taken up in their sins. What do I mean by that? Jonah 4.11 is a good example. There God's Spirit is reasoning with reluctant prophet Jonah who didn't want to go to Nineveh to do what he was supposed to do, to preach salvation to hated enemies. The Ninevites were, were, boy, you know, they're worse than the most hated country you could think of. And Jonah said, I'm not going. And the Lord was reasoning by his spirit with Jonah's mind and saying, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Who is he talking about? the opinion is almost unanimous, the children of Nineveh. The Lord was saying, do you understand? You hate these Ninevites. Do you understand there are 120,000 little people in Nineveh who aren't your enemies? They don't hate you, and I have a special compassion on them. And he describes them as those who cannot yet discern between their right hand and their left. That same phrase comes out in an important text, Deuteronomy 139, where it's described as children who do not yet know good from bad. And there are several other occasions of that phrase in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 16, and other places, where the Lord is seeming to say, you know, there's this group there that whatever you think of that group of people or this group of people, this group within a group, are not morally responsible for what you think about those other people. Now, yes, we know the Scripture says all children are born under the shadow of mankind's fall, all children. 
are culpable for the sin of Adam and the curse of Adam. There's a time in young lives, though, when it seems the Lord is saying, I don't look upon them at least the same as those who as adults have rejected me, trampled on me, walked away from me, or blasphemed me, or who in reasoned ways simply say, I don't exist. Now, this leads theologians, as you might know, to talk about a phrase that's not a Bible phrase, but it's a concept that we use to try to think about this, an age of accountability. What is that? It's very difficult to pin it down. Only the Lord himself knows when that moral accountability can be active in the life of a child. If you, you might be running through your mind. When could we say a child does know his moral right hand from his left hand? I can't tell you. I'm not even going to start naming ages because it's impossible for us to assign that as something God alone knows. But it does seem to be biblical, and all I am saying here is that there's a, there are viewpoints given in the Scripture where it seems God is saying, I look upon the youngest ones as being morally and in terms of responsibility separate from those who deliberately sin or who deliberately choose not to believe. Now, that's just preliminary information. Let's go to our text in the second place today, 2 Samuel 12, 23. And here now, listen to David's assurance of a heavenly reunion with a dead infant son. This is a very unique text in the Bible because it's the clearest shaft of light on this subject, 2 Samuel 12, 23, that we have. I think it's about six times in my 35 or 36 years of pastoral ministry that I have presided at the funeral of a child or an infant. Very sad, very hard times. Every time if I chose the text, I preached on this text because it's the clearest. It's where the light shines through like a beacon. Here we meet God's inspired prophet, a man who himself has solid hopes of enjoying the presence of God in eternity who declares beyond doubt that he will share that eternity with a seven-day-old dead child of his. Now, you know the story. I'm not going to go back and rehearse everything about David and Bathsheba. I don't have time. David's crimes were awful. What was he thinking? What in the world was he doing? But thank God he awakened under Nathan's accusation right away, In verse 13, he said, I have sinned. And we have the whole psalm of Psalm 51 in which he pours out in details that sin. It was sincere. It was swift. It was the repentance of a man of God despite the horrible things he had done. And God forgave. God forgave. Isn't it marvelous? As soon as David sincerely said, I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13, Nathan said, the Lord has taken it away. Don't tell me the gospel's not in the Old Testament. There's the gospel. As soon as we say, my sin is terrible, it's loathsome against the Lord, the Lord takes it away for the sake of Christ. But the Lord did say there are going to be negative consequences, and they were not only the death of this child. They were, in fact, the crumbling of the entire dynasty coming out of David and through Solomon and his descendants. Now, one Quick topic to address. There are people who always foolishly complain about this text, and it, well, something sticks out to them, and they say, oh, I can't get past this. Your God looks like a monster here. Why does he look like a monster? Because he made a little 
child suffer for his father's sin? I don't have any problem answering. You know, there are a lot of tough things to answer that people raise. That's not one of them. God did not make this child suffer. This child was taken into the arms of a loving God into eternal bliss. This little child avoided a whole life of trouble and sadness and and all the mess he would have gotten into as one of the sons of David who later battled it out as to who was going to be king. This child did not suffer. David and Bathsheba suffered. The whole dynasty of Israel suffered because of David's sin. Now the king's servants, we read, were astonished that David could take this death so calmly. And notice, by the way, you know, he didn't just get up and clean himself after a week of, you know, probably no bathing, no shaving, no, he was, uh, he was a mess. He did that, but what did he do? Even before he went to the, the dinner table, don't miss what he did. He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. I don't know what he said, but he said something like, oh God, you are very great and you have every right to do with me what you are doing. I praise you. But the important thing we focus on is what he said to the servants when they questioned him. They thought his behavior was bizarre. They didn't understand it. He said, look, when I thought maybe my prayers would save the child, of course I fasted. Of course I prayed. But I can't bring him back. He's dead. And then this sentence, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. There are some who want to diminish this text, and they say, oh, David was just saying, someday my bones will rest in the cemetery next to his. That's all he was saying. Can't believe that for a minute. I don't believe that for a minute. David, the man who believed in his future life in heaven, lived in the presence of God, was saying, I will spend that life with this little seven-day-old child that I've never had a chance to know in this world. He, after all, was the one who said in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's the one who said at the end of Psalm 16, in your presence, O God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures evermore. That's where David planned to see his son. Now, I want to remind you of a very different reaction upon the death of another one of David's sons. He had several sons. And the next one with a famous name, of course, was Absalom. You remember Absalom, Prince Charming in every way, charismatic, willful, thought that his father's time was over. He wanted the kingdom right away. He rose with a rebellion, led it in a military way, and David's troops went out, and Absalom was killed. And they brought the word back. 2 Samuel 19.4, look it up. It's one of the biggest whales in the Old Testament. David reacted to the death of this other son. What did he say? Did he say, oh, don't worry. I will go to him. Uh Uh-uh. David said, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And he wailed and he cried and they couldn't stop his grieving. Why the great difference between the king's reaction to two sons who died? It seems very clear. With the little baby without a name, David stopped his mourning because that child was with God. 
But with Absalom, the, the young man, full of confidence and bravado, and already having a name for himself, David mourned and wouldn't stop because one son was secure in the arms of God and the other one not only was not, but apparently never could be. What a difference. And now I ask this question today. I cannot give you all on this subject that we're going to consider, in fact, some important things that we still have to look at next time. But I want to ask this question in the third place. Can David's hope for his son be generalized? Can we have this hope? Can we have his composure about a future reunion with an infant, with a child that you never even knew as, as a face or a voice if you miscarried the child early term? Can we, believing parents, believe that we will see our children beyond the grave? Well, the one way I want to answer is to say we must challenge anyone who would try to say to us that this text does not apply to us. Why would it not apply? Was David in some special category that we are not in? That he alone could have such a confidence before God? I say no. This text absolutely supports us in our griefs. And fortunately, I'm, you know, you shouldn't believe it because I believe it. But here's the declaration of the man of God, and there are many, many interpreters of God's word who say, this is for all of us. One of them was a man whose name you would suppose, if, I, if you thought about it, that, that he would be one of the ones that you would think does not think this, and his name is John Calvin. Oh, John Calvin, he was that nasty guy. You know, election, predestination, you're in or you're out, and all that stuff. You mean John Calvin thought little infants were in heaven? Well, I urge you to examine his writings on the subject. You can do that. Calvin certainly believed, as we must, that every child in the world is born under the curse of sin. We are born inheritors of Adam's sin. Ephesians 2.3 says we are all children of wrath by birth. But Calvin said, if you are not one of God's elect, if you are what we would call a reprobate person, then you can't possibly die as an infant. In fact, if an infant dies, Calvin would argue that right in itself is a proof that this is one of God's elect. Because Calvin used his logic to say, look, if a person is going to be condemned for their own sins, they have to live to inherit those sins. They have to work out, act out, Calvin said, procure their damnation by their behavior. And so he saw that if an infant died, he counted that, by the way, his own infant son, his only child, died at a very young age. Calvin said, the child is elect, must be. Listen to John Newton, same writer of Amazing Grace and a wise pastor, wrote many good letters pastorally. Newton wrote to a couple who had had a child die. And here's what he said. He wrote to these friends. He said, I hope you are both well reconciled to the death of your child. He said, I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms in this life they escape. He said, nor can I doubt in private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. They're with Christ. Well, he didn't say click your heels up and rejoice. Certainly this is a sorrow and a grief. 
But he said, be secure, be confident. This child is with the Lord. Now, be sure you understand, Calvin and Newton and people like them are not imagining that children are saved by some sentimental idea of their supposed sinless innocence. No, they, they are sinners in, in need. They're potentially the same category of sinners as Adolf Hitler was born to be. They need a Savior, but, they, but what these people are saying is that biblically we believe God applies to them the redemption of the Savior he provided Jesus Christ. They need a Savior. They have a Savior. They haven't claimed him with their rational faith, but God treats them differently. Another voice, and you'll hear some more next week, but another modern theologian who would stand with these folks is John Piper, a well-known preacher today, very popular. John Piper expresses his confidence in the salvation of young infants like this, but he uses a unique argument from Romans 1, 18 to 20. And Piper says, look, their scripture in Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is visited against all mankind universally. Since the basic truth of who God is and what he is and everything else can be seen and known in the natural world, people are without excuse because they reject the God who reveals himself. They suppress truth about God. Well, Piper then says, look, If a person, I'm quoting him now, if a person does not have access to understand the revelation of God's glory in this world, if he lacks natural capacity to understand it, then we can certainly imply that that person has an escape from judgment, has an excuse. The Scripture says we're without excuse, but if you don't know what God reveals, you have an excuse. And Piper said, God only executes his wrath on those who have the capacity to see his glory and refuse to see it. Quoting him again, infants, I believe, do not have this capacity. Now, I've dug myself in on on a very deep subject, and you can see I'm out of time, and I have a lot more to say. And the key thing that I haven't even gotten to are the words of Jesus. I knew I wouldn't get there, by the way. And I hope to do that next week. Because until we hear what Jesus, the Son of God, says on this subject, we shouldn't consider the matter decided. And we'll be trying to look at whether or not this is a subject that only believing parents, Christian parents, can have confidence about, or whether there's a confidence that extends generally to all children. And you begin to see how this, wow, is it possible that all Aborted children from all time are in heaven awaiting us? Is it possible that the Hindu and Buddhist and Islamic children of all the world who don't know their right hand from their left and die and go to eternity are saved? I won't know the conclusive answers, but I'll try to explore it with you next time. But for today, we've got this faith declaration of David to part on. It's like a shining beacon here in 2 Samuel 12, 23. Dr. John MacArthur is a modern writer who also supports these ideas. And MacArthur said, I quote him, Our loved ones who are in heaven, including the littlest ones, experience everything that can be known about the wholeness and perfection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, for that wholeness and that perfection are true for them right now in eternity. True for little Becky. She couldn't speak a word in this world. 
she speaks the praise of Jesus. I believe it. Our foundation of confidence is set in the goodness and the justice of God, and we say, will not the judge of all things do what is right? We trust him for a reunion with children we conceive who die in their infancy or their, or their early youth. Our little ones are safe in these merciful arms if they cannot be protected in our arms. And they have not lost their lives. They have gained eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for shafts of light that come through. There are things you haven't chosen to spell out quite so completely or plainly as others. Thank you for this declaration of David. It gives us great hope. Thank you for that man of God, despite his terrible behavior and sin, who reacted to sin the way we must, to repent and say, the Lord's hand do with me as he might. Father, I pray for those who carry grief on their hearts. Give them your comfort in this matter as in many others. Through Jesus Christ, amen.